A warning before we begin. Today's episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault. Caution is advised for listeners under 13. For those of you who may not know, I recently got engaged. And let me say, it is a whirlwind experience. There's so many emotions and thoughts that run through your head. Marriage is the start of a brand new chapter. It can feel wonderful and daunting all at the same time. Because you're committing to being with someone for the rest of your life. You're no longer one. You're a team. I can't imagine saying yes and then saying I do, only for that next chapter to get ripped away before it actually begins. But that's exactly what happened to Jennifer Hagel Smith. And to make matters worse, the world blamed her when her husband went missing. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm introducing you to George Smith. In 2005, George and his new wife, Jennifer, set sail on their dream honeymoon, a Mediterranean cruise. But a few days into their journey, George disappeared. To this day, the answer to what happened to him depends on who you ask. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden... Just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. I've shared a lot of stories with you by now. But in all of my research, none of them have come alive quite like George Smith's. There are so many home videos and photographs taken of George and his new bride up until the moment of his disappearance. Doing research for this episode felt like living alongside them, and it makes the case that much more emotional to share. They look happy, radiant, blissfully in love, connected to each other's families. 
And I want to start today's episode before all that disappears on their wedding day. It's June 25th, 2005. 26-year-old George Smith and 25-year-old Jennifer Hagel say their I do's at a Victorian mansion overlooking the Atlantic. Their marriage comes as no surprise to anyone in attendance. According to friends, as soon as George met Jennifer, she became his life. Everything changed for the better. They live in Greenwich, Connecticut, a very wealthy suburb that's within commuting distance to New York City. George is part owner of a local liquor store, a family business he runs with his father. He's well-known and well-liked around town, especially for his humor. He knows how to make people laugh. Jennifer's the daughter of a police officer and an aspiring grade school teacher. She's bubbly, intelligent, and striking. She and George got engaged last year on a trip to Aruba. It was apparently a picture-perfect moment. The ring, the sunset, everything. Having seen the home videos, I can tell you their wedding is just as picturesque. It feels straight out of a fairy tale. It's everything a happy couple could ever dream to have. George and Jennifer can't keep their eyes off each other. And you can feel the love their guests have for them. The following day, the couple says goodbye to their friends and family at a farewell brunch. Almost immediately, they fly to Barcelona to begin their honeymoon. There, they board the Royal Caribbean's Brilliance of the Seas, a massive cruise liner that they'll call home for the next 12 days while sailing to romantic destinations like France, Greece, Turkey, and Italy. On board, George and Jennifer make friends with other guests, including Paul and Galena Kvitniski, another newlywed couple, and a 20-year-old California college student named Josh Askin who's vacationing with his parents. But when the cruise liner docks in Mykonos on July 4th, the couple spend the day alone. They take the afternoon to walk around the island, basking in the sun and joking about wanting to move to Greece permanently. At some point that day, George emails his parents saying he's having the time of his life. He jokingly writes, quote, don't get in contact unless it's the end of the world or someone's dying. At about 6 p.m., the couple heads back to the ship to clean up for dinner. They've dined with Paul and Galena a few times before, but tonight they opt for a solo date. They tell their friends they'll meet up with them in the ship's casino later. Around 11 p.m., Jennifer's playing blackjack, and George is teaching their new friend, Josh Askin, how to play craps. Paul and Galena join in the festivities, and eventually, so do three other 20-somethings, a group of Russian-American students, cousins Zachary and Greg Rosenberg, and their friend, Rusty Kaufman. Naturally, everyone's drinking. According to Paul and Galena, George isn't the kind of guy who holds his alcohol well. He seems tipsy after a couple beers, and this likely contributes to what happens next. According to multiple witnesses, George keeps loudly mentioning how much money he has back in his cabin. Some people hear him say $14,000, others hear 17,000, and they believe it because George and Jennifer look the part. 
George is sporting this fancy Breitling watch, which retails for tens of thousands of dollars. And Jennifer's engagement ring clearly looks like it's worth a small fortune. Around 1 a.m., George leaves to grab more cash for gambling. Josh tags along, and the two stop by Josh's room and take some shots of absinthe. A few minutes later, they're back at the craps table, a little drunker than before, and George has a fresh stack of bills in hand. By the time the clock strikes 2 a.m., Paul and Galena have already called it a night. The casino's dimming their lights, signaling that it's time to wrap up. But George, Jennifer, Josh, and the three Russian Americans want to keep the party going. So they head to the nightclub that's located on the top deck. The ship's off-duty casino manager, Lloyd Botha, tags along as well. Everyone's already feeling the alcohol, but someone sneaks Josh's bottle of absinthe into the club, and the group discreetly passes it around. George and maybe even Jennifer take some swigs. Then around 3.30 a.m., a few witnesses notice the newlyweds arguing. I don't know what the argument's about, but there's at least one witness who apparently overhears George say the word hussy and watches Jennifer kick George in the groin and storm out. About 15 minutes later, the club's getting ready to close. George is slumped over in a chair, drunk. So Greg, Zachary, Rusty, and Josh escort him back to his cabin. Based on the Royal Caribbean's keycard logs, they enter the room at 3.52 a.m., and apparently, Jennifer's not there when they arrive. When George realizes this, he says he doesn't want to go to bed. He insists on going to look for Jennifer. So his new friends decide to tag along. But they don't look very hard, given that George can barely walk at this point. After a quick lap around the ship's hot tub room and no sign of Jennifer, Greg, Zachary, Rusty, and Josh bring George back to his cabin. According to logs, they're back at 4.01 a.m., which means they allotted approximately nine minutes to search the 90,000-ton cruise ship. Josh uses George's bathroom. The other guys take off his shoes and tuck him into bed. They say goodnight, and by 4.30 a.m., they're supposedly back in Zach and Rusty's room ordering a ton of room service. Josh says he returned to his room and bed by 5.15 a.m., Two hours later, the sun starts to rise over the Mediterranean. On deck seven, a 16-year-old guest named Emily Rausch steps onto her balcony to snap photos of the sunrise. But as she does, she sees a large red stain on the canopy protecting the lifeboats just below her cabin. And next to it, a bloody handprint. It looks like someone had been clinging on for dear life. Emily and her family notify the cruise line staff, who begin checking the cabins above the stain to see if anyone is injured or missing. When they reach Jennifer and George's room, it's empty. Around 8.15 a.m., they page the Smiths over the ship's intercom. They find Jennifer alone. She's getting her half of their previously scheduled couple's massage in the spa. Staff members tell Jennifer to get dressed and come to guest relations. There, the captain apparently tells her, your husband is missing and presumed overboard. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Before I go any further in this story, I want to rewind a bit to answer an important question. Where was Jennifer between 3.30 a.m. when she left the nightclub and 8.15 a.m. when staff members found her in the spa? Now, I want to make her side of the story very clear because over the years, she's come under fire for suspicion that I don't think she deserves. There are plenty of witnesses who see Jennifer leave the club alone that night, including a man named Troy Gonzalez. Troy's a member of the ship's cleaning staff, and he notices that like everyone else she was with, Jennifer's drunk. He sees her hit her head on the wall as she stumbles towards the elevators. Worried about her safety, he rides with her to the ninth floor, which is where she says her cabin is. When the doors open, Jennifer walks down the hall looking for her room, and Troy heads back to work. About an hour later, another staff member finds Jennifer passed out in the hallway. She never made it to her room. She's so drunk, they call two security officers to take her to her room in a wheelchair. According to the Royal Caribbean's logs, she keys into the cabin at 4.57 a.m., meaning roughly 30 minutes after Josh Askin and the others left George alone in the room to go order room service. And when Jennifer arrives at 4.57, George is gone. The balcony doors are shut and the blinds are closed. Jennifer passes out, still in her dress, thinking maybe George spent the night in their friend's room. He'd done that at least once before on their trip. When she wakes up a few hours later and George still isn't in the cabin, Jennifer doesn't panic. She's frustrated more than anything. She and George have a couple's massage to go to and she has no way of getting in touch with him. She figures if he's that hungover, he deserves to miss their appointment. She'll get her half of the couple's massage without him and he'll regret it later on. So when Captain Michael Lactorides tells her George is missing and presumed overboard, Jennifer is understandably shocked. Now, the captain tells Jennifer that he believes what happened to George was most likely an accident. But at this point, I'm not sure he can or should be making that statement because it's not based on any security camera footage or concrete evidence. What he says is there's a quote, butt print in the morning dew on the Smith's balcony railing. As the captain explains it, George was probably smoking a cigar or something when a wave rocked the boat and he fell. That's it. 
And Jennifer believes this version of events, because why wouldn't she? This is the highest ranking officer on the ship. She has no reason to doubt him. Nobody's told her about the blood. She knows George didn't intentionally go overboard. So at this point, an accident is what makes the most sense. It's only later that day, after the cruise liner docks in Kushidase, Turkey, that Jennifer finds out there's an open, active investigation into the cause of her husband's death. While the rest of the guests file off for a day of sightseeing, Jennifer is told she needs to stay on board. According to her, she can't go back to her room until they examine the scene. She's also told not to call George's parents, which is why she calls her father and he delivers the news to the Smiths about their son's tragic death. Meanwhile, since she can't go into her room, Royal Caribbean gives Jennifer some branded clothing to wear. Then she, Josh Askin, and the Russian Americans are rounded up and questioned by Turkish authorities. Greg, Rusty, Zach, and Josh all tell the same story. It's the one I told. George got incredibly drunk, they helped him back to his cabin, and put him to bed. Jennifer, on the other hand, draws a complete blank. She says she doesn't remember passing out in the hallway. She doesn't remember leaving the club. She doesn't remember the fight she had with George or kicking him in the groin. This has to be devastating for Jennifer. She can't help Turkish investigators with any information, however much she wants to. And if eyewitnesses are right, her last interaction she'll ever have with her husband was an angry one. She has to live with that knowledge forever. Even if she doesn't fully remember the details. During their examination of George's room, Turkish authorities find blood. It's not a lot of blood. In fact, it's hardly noticeable. But here's why it's significant. The marks may be small, but it almost looks like someone painted the number 11 on the sheets in blood. George's mother, Maureen, wonders if someone pinched George's wrist while trying to remove his very expensive watch, which could indicate a robbery, maybe even a robbery gone wrong. But at the end of the day, of all the people on board the cruise, Turkish authorities escort Jennifer down to the police station for further questioning. She's interrogated, then brought to a nearby hospital, where for reasons I can't explain, Jennifer says a staff member lifted up her shirt and looked down her pants. Meanwhile, she knows she's supposed to be back on the cruise liner by 7 p.m. when it's set to leave. After hounding the police to take her back, Jennifer arrives at the dock only to find out the brilliance of the seas is taking off without her. Her and George's belongings have been packed up in their suitcases. They're already waiting for her. Whatever didn't fit, someone haphazardly stuffed into Royal Caribbean shopping bags. According to Jennifer, this is when it all washes over her. George probably isn't coming back. He's gone forever. She's now alone, in grief in a foreign country where she doesn't speak the language possibly under suspicion of having a hand in her husband's disappearance. Sit in that for a second. In Jennifer's account, Royal Caribbean kicked a 25-year-old woman, presumably a widow now, off their ship without explanation. 
hours after telling her her husband's missing. Now, Royal Caribbean refutes Jennifer's version of events here. In a PR statement released in 2006 titled Top 10 Myths Regarding Royal Caribbean's Handling of the Disappearance of George Smith, they claim Jennifer wasn't left alone in Turkey. She was escorted by a female staff member, and Royal Caribbean claims they made travel arrangements for Jennifer because she wanted to go home. Who's telling the truth? Well, I'll let you decide that for yourself. As Jennifer watches the brilliance of the seas sail away, she doesn't know that there are other Royal Caribbean passengers who will become persons of interest in her husband's case still on board. Several people come forward with information that suggests George's new friends may have done more than just tuck him into bed that night. At around 4 a.m. on the morning of the 5th, a vacationing deputy police chief named Cleet Hyman woke up to the sounds of cheering in the cabin next to George Smith's cabin. He said it sounded like a college drinking game. He banged on the wall to get them to quiet down before calling security around 4.05 a.m. After that, Cleet heard voices coming from George's balcony. There's a bit of arguing, as well as a few men speaking in another language before saying goodnight. Then the voices move back to the bedroom and it sounds like someone slams cabinet doors closed and starts moving furniture. Cleet then hears George's cabin door open. He goes to the peephole to see who's causing the commotion and notices three men walking away from the room. Three, that's important. Remember, there were supposedly four men who tucked George into bed. Cleet checks his watch. It's 4.18 a.m. when the men walk by. Then, a few minutes later, Cleet hears chairs shuffling on George's balcony, followed by a chilling thud. Cleet's not the only person hearing all of this. In the room on the other side of George's cabin, Pat and Greg Lawyer hear almost the same exact thing. A voice says goodnight. Someone tells George to calm down. Then, at 4.25 a.m., the thud. Five minutes later, there's a knock on George's cabin door. It's the security guards that Cleet called 25 minutes ago. Greg Lawyer exits his cabin and tells the guards everything he just heard and says they better go in and check on what's happening inside George's room. But the security guards just dismiss his concerns. They tell Greg that George's room is silent now. There's no reason for them to enter anymore which is so frustrating in retrospect. But I wanna mention one more detail the lawyers apparently overheard that night, right before the thud, a woman's scream. As far as I know, that person has never been identified, but it couldn't have been Jennifer because at almost the exact same time, she's discovered by cruise line staff sleeping on the wrong end of the hallway. But even though Jennifer has an alibi, in the days after George's disappearance, Greg, Zach, Rusty, and Josh make statements that possibly cast Jennifer as a suspect, or at least unfaithful. They all say Jennifer left the club with the off-duty casino manager, Lloyd Botha, even though other witnesses say she left the club alone, and Lloyd's keycard confirms he was in his girlfriend's room by 3.25 a.m., when Jennifer was still at the club fighting with George in front of witnesses. 
all the accusation does is show that the young men are lying. And it's not the only time they're caught in a lie. Remember earlier when I said the boys claimed to be back in their rooms by 4.30 a.m. ordering room service? According to official logs, they keyed into Zach and Rusty's room at 5.03 a.m., almost half an hour after the thud. There's also no record of any of them ordering food. In fact, some of the young men had been banned from placing room service orders for verbally abusing the staff. And verbal abuse wasn't their only offense on board the cruise ship. Complaints had been lodged about the Russian Americans for sneaking liquor and smoking on board. And the night after George Smith went missing, Greg and Rusty were accused of raping an 18-year-old passenger while Josh watched on. On July 6th, the night after George Smith goes missing, an 18-year-old passenger from Georgia heads back to her cabin to find her friend in bad shape. To protect her identity, I'll call this friend Heather. Heather says she's in bad shape because earlier, she was drugged and sexually assaulted by a few male passengers, and she could prove it. The whole thing had been videotaped. Earlier that night, she was in the hot tub on deck 11, introducing herself to a group of Russian-American passengers, Rusty Kaufman, Greg Rosenberg, and Greg's brother, Jeffrey. The trio was passing around a bottle of vodka. By the time Heather decided to go back to her room, she was intoxicated. The men offered to escort her, but instead of taking Heather back to her cabin, they led her to theirs. Josh Askin joined them there. According to Heather, Greg, Jeffrey, and Rusty took turns assaulting her while they filmed the encounter. In the video, Josh appears to stand by as the others threatened Heather and demand she make what they call validating statements to the camera, essentially statements of consent. And as disgusting as it is for me to think about, this helps the young men's case when their lawyers later argue that the encounter was consensual. After Heather reports what happened, it takes another three days for anything meaningful to get done. When the boat docks in Naples, the cruise line asks the young men and their parents to pack their bags and find a new way home. Italian officials confiscate the videotape of the alleged assault as evidence but ultimately do little else. Since the boat was in international waters when the alleged crime occurred, it's technically outside their jurisdiction. After minimal questioning, they let the families go on their way. They wash their hands clean of it. A grand jury later investigates the alleged assault, and no charges are ultimately filed. But after confiscating the tapes, Italian officials find other damning footage on the alleged rape not related to Heather, but related to George. It's a conversation between Rusty, Greg, and Zach that happened hours after George went missing. And the way they talk about what happened is nauseating to even think about. According to the CBS News special, Murder at Sea, at one point, Rusty jokes about George going, quote, parachute riding off his balcony. Then Greg flashes a hand sign to the camera and says, quote, 
I told you I was gangster. Of course, that's not a confession. And Rusty's lawyer argues that Rusty didn't even know George was dead at the time the video was taken. But even still, it's certainly suspect, especially when paired with the fact that Josh and Rusty failed their polygraph test when questioned by the FBI. All the young men consistently pleaded the fifth or refused to answer their questions. Not to mention, a fellow passenger apparently overheard Josh Askin make statements like, those assholes almost got me arrested in Turkey, and I know more than they think. They, presumably referring to the Russian Americans, and possibly the authorities. But according to Josh's lawyer, he has not withheld any information from officials. And to be clear, the FBI has never arrested, much less convicted anyone in connection to George Smith's disappearance. They have not named any suspects, there's apparently not enough evidence. It's also important to mention Josh Askin, Rusty Kaufman, and Zach Rosenberg have always maintained their innocence. Greg Rosenberg has also maintained his innocence, but he apparently doesn't believe George fell overboard or died by suicide. He's gone on record saying, quote, something crazy went down that night, and I hope one day they find out the truth. In 2015, without ever making real headway, the FBI closed their investigation. George's family have since tried to get his case reopened unsuccessfully. And without a conviction, the court of public opinion has seemingly chosen their own villain, Jennifer. One of the main reasons I think Jennifer has become an easy target is because she has little memory about the night's events and people think that's suspicious. Setting aside the gender roles that I believe are at play here, I don't think people would feel the same if it was a man who couldn't remember. Drinking in excess isn't a crime. Not to mention, investigators have suggested that Jennifer and George may have both been drugged that night. Jennifer's complete blackout is more consistent with roofies or date rape drugs than heavy drinking. And yet, for some reason, the media focused their attention on Jennifer. Then when she didn't cry during interviews or play the part of the stereotypical grieving widow, the backlash only got worse. Even her in-laws, George's parents, bought into the suspicion. I can only imagine how painful that must have been. How lonely. When George's case finally saw its day in court, his sister Bree argued that Royal Caribbean failed her brother many times over. It wasn't just the security guards on the night of his disappearance. According to Bree, the cruise line also failed to preserve the crime scene until the FBI came on board. She'd heard that hours after George went missing, the captain ordered the blood on the overhang to be rinsed by staff. George's cabin was then cleaned by a bevy of housekeeping staff. Meanwhile, the information the Royal Caribbean did collect over the course of the investigation was only reluctantly handed over. Brett Rivkin, a maritime lawyer hired by the Smiths, claimed that a team of risk management attorneys for the cruise line were flown out to Turkey upon news that George was missing. They reported the event to the FBI, but suggested it was an accident, allegedly withholding all the information about the multiple noise complaints and the blood in the cabin. 
worse, they apparently interviewed guests in an effort to change the narrative, perpetuating the lie that foul play couldn't have been involved when it clearly was on the table. Now, once again, I should mention Royal Caribbean's official statement differs from some of what I've presented. The cruise line claims they did everything they could to preserve the crime scene. According to them, by 2.30 p.m. on July 5th, Turkish authorities were done with a forensic examination of the room, and Royal Caribbean staff were told they could clean the cabin. The room was sealed before an FBI officer came to take photos on July 7th, which still means they cleaned the crime scene before the FBI arrived. But regardless, Royal Caribbean wrapped up their statement by trying to assuage public concerns. They claimed George Smith was just one of five people to ever fall overboard during one of their cruises. But that number may not tell the whole story. See, in 2005, it was perfectly legal for cruise lines not to report crimes aboard their ships. Anything that did get reported was on a voluntary basis. As long as they were 12 miles offshore when it happened, they were not beholden to any jurisdiction other than their own. Rapes, assault, murders, and disappearances were all allowed to go uninvestigated if the cruise line wanted to keep them quiet which I imagine more often than not, they did. Honestly, I could start a new podcast focused on cruise line cases alone. There might not be a protocol for how to properly handle these situations, but it really feels like if one did exist, it would read, deny, underplay, and or throw money at the problem until it goes away. But I'm not gonna let George's story disappear with him and neither is his family. There's no amount of money that can silence the dedication and love of a grieving family searching for the truth. In 2010, partially inspired by George Smith's case, President Barack Obama signed the Cruise Vessel Security and Safety Act. It mandated cruise lines to contact the FBI and the Coast Guard immediately in the event of any homicides, suspicious deaths, kidnappings, assaults, and disappearances. Along with this came a bunch of new security measures that ships are required to follow. As of this recording, George Smith's disappearance remains unsolved, but I have hope that one day that might change. For now, we'll have to settle for this slight increase in accountability. It's not much, but maybe now George Smith's story won't become someone else's. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found Joan Lowne's book, Man Overboard, Inside the Honeymoon Cruise Murder, as well as reports from CBS News, NBC News, and Greenwich Magazine, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Alex Button. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.